Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather. From Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. States do extensive outreach through their animal health regulators, and we work in tandem in almost every state in the United States. Jack Shear with USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. We have people that are in the field. They have people that are in the field working on this on a daily basis. We work on policy together. We have a gap analysis from the APHIS Technical Working Group. They've worked over two years on looking at what our response would look like and where we have gaps. And we're addressing those both with the industry and with the state to say these are the holes we need to plug because we have serious concerns that this would hamper our ability to respond. So that partnership, and we call it a three-legged stool between the states, the industry, and the federal government is extremely important because no one entity can do this alone. We have to work together. That's the only way we're going to battle this disease. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. Winter wheat planted acres a pretty big rebound with those high prices for wheat, some of it related to war in the Ukraine, you you will observe that farmers have responded and planted a lot more wheat. USDA's chief economist, Seth Meyer, at the Ag Outlook Forum. One of the troubles, troubling things at the moment is we continue to have western drought over some of those same wheat areas. As I go through this presentation, I'm going to tell you the lay of the land, and then I'm going to tell you the risks associated with that. Okay, so one of the risks associated with that higher wheat area year over year is the fact that a lot of that wheat in the in the Western Plains is in drought. This has also had effects beyond wheat. We've seen issues with cattle that we'll talk about in terms of drought and the inability for producers to perhaps hold cow calf pairs in order to turn the cattle cycle. So when we break this down a little bit more as well, too, you know, wheat is not wheat and we've got drought over lots of areas of hard red winter wheat. Alternatively, we've seen some big percentage increases year over year in soft red winter areas in Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. You're talking 20 to 50 percent year over year increases in wheat area. That's because those folks have moisture. That's because the economics suggests that wheat is a good product. And then maybe you get a little bit of crop insurance coverage expansion that says folks are willing to take that risk on a crop that they haven't produced before. So we will see whether or not those folks will take that additional coverage or not, but they've planted soft red winter, perhaps they will plant beans following it. Crop insurance at least provides them an opportunity to do so if they find it beneficial at that time. So let's keep talking about wheat, and I think we can't ignore the fact that one of the big stories in wheat has been war in Ukraine. You've got two of the biggest wheat producers in the world fighting in an area that exports a lot of wheat. The Ukrainians have... Initially, this this graph shows you a couple different things. The line is the normal seasonal pattern for their exports. Gray is wheat moving overland, not the traditional export path for Ukraine. And orange is the Black Sea Grain Initiative. So that is the UN's Black Sea Grain Initiative. So what you can see is, before the initiative, very little grain moving. Some of it moving overland at a very high cost. And then it's switching to the Black Sea Grain Initiative. The Black Sea Grain Initiative has been really critical for those folks to in Ukraine to achieve grain exports. Okay, That initiative is coming up here in the next month for renewal. That is something that contributes to the Ukrainians exporting grain. That moderates global export, that moderates global grain prices. Whether that grain ends up in a specific country or not, its availability in the world market reduces wheat prices. It reduces other commodity prices. It serves the purpose of moderating prices. The Black Sea Grain Initiative is going to be important for them to continue to export volumes that they've been exporting.
but it isn't without challenges for the Ukrainians. We've already seen them pull back on winter wheat plantings. So I'm showing you a map here of where winter wheat is, had been historically planted and areas of conflict. So you've got Ukrainian farmers that are trying to... The Black Sea Grain Initiative does not get them back to pre-war levels in exportability, but it does get them a ways there. But they now have to rationalize production in the face of greater difficulty to export, financial problems, war... Uh, so any number of problems here that are likely to reduce their spring crop plantings along with their already lower winter wheat plantings. My concern would be if the Black Sea Grain Initiative does not continue, they will have to rationalize production further down. The Black Sea Grain Initiative is serving a very important purpose to get that product out and moderate global uh, grain prices. It's agriculture today. This is Agriculture Today. We've learned a great deal, and food, again, is a national security issue. Representative Jim Costa, a member of the House Ag Committee from California, at a recent Farm Bill listening session in Tulare. And for some of you who uh, are not familiar with the halls of Washington, the Farm Bill is one of the most bipartisan bills that we, we act on every five years. And so it's with that spirit, Mr. Chairman, that we're all here today uh, working, we hope, this year for a very successful bipartisan Farm Bill because it's all about sustainable agriculture. With 7 billion people on the planet, by the middle of this century, we're likely to have 9 billion people. Sustainable agriculture. Agriculture is critical to America. We have in California challenges with a broken water system, a broken immigration system, not directly involved in the Farm Bill, but part of the Farm Worker Modernization Act that we need to focus on. I think the thing that I learned here, Mr. Chairman, that I think we're going to have to work on, when we look at the 12 titles and the popularity of the MAP program, the EQIP program, the conservation programs, crop insurance, research, nutrition, is baseline funding. We're going to run up against baseline funding because the success of many of these programs are oversubscribed. So we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. But looking forward to your leadership, I know that we'll look at an above-all strategy, working together, dealing with the inflationary impacts that many of our people who spoke today uh, noted, and we know that uh, crafting solutions to make sure that America's agriculture remains the number one agricultural industry in the entire world. Nobody does it better than the American farmer. Thank you. David Rouser represents a North Carolina District, also a member of the House Ag Committee. Uh, as mentioned, I'm from uh, North Carolina and, uh, quite frankly, uh, live about as far east as you can be from here unless you're going to go to an island in the Atlantic Ocean. And um, I've been here, uh, this is not, not my first time, actually my second time. I was out here about a year or so ago with our uh, buddy Devin Nunes, uh, who, by the way, sends his regards and, and uh, wishes he could uh, be with here here with us today as well. But greatly appreciate your input. Uh, you know, my growers in North Carolina uh, have a lot of the same fundamental issues that you have. Basically, uh, can you please help get the government out of the way so that we can do what we want to do and need to do and can do uh, to make American agriculture great? Uh, and as was mentioned earlier, American agriculture means food security, not only food security, it means national security. So with that, I just want to thank you for your input. I appreciate it very much. It's going to be very helpful to us as we work to craft a uh, stronger safety net uh, than what we have in place now and plus address the other needs uh, you know that arise. Another member of the House Ag Committee from California, Salute Carbajal. Really appreciate this bipartisan um, 
effort today to really hear from all the stakeholders. Uh, sitting on the committee, I look forward to advocating for California agriculture, especially specialty crops. And I also look forward to making sure that our farm bill is one that benefits our farmers, ranchers, farm workers, and builds on our nutrition assistance programs, a SNAP program. I appreciate also hearing from the food banks that were here today in that regard. I have the distinction of being a son of a farm worker. Uh, I've worked many a summers with my father in many farms, and I now represent uh, a, count, a district that, whose number one in industry is agriculture. So I look forward to bridging all of those important interests, and I hear you loud and clear about water, infrastructure, and uh, immigration reform. Uh, last uh, term, we worked on the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which was a bipartisan bill. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't make it over the finish line, but uh, working on other committees, we hope to be able to move that forward as well. It's agriculture today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. They're focused on Wall Street, and unfortunately, they've kind of veered over to Main Street and impacting the potential uh, businesses of uh, farmers and ranchers. Andrew Walmsley is with the American Farm Bureau Federation. They have a proposed rule around climate disclosure um, that goes much further uh, than what you would traditionally think SEC would like information on. And those are those companies that are registrants, those large companies you know, that are regulated by the SEC. Uh, this proposed rulemaking is looking at their emissions and their climate risk. And there's three different scopes uh, when you talk about different greenhouse gas emissions. Scope one and two are things that companies traditionally can control. It's their, their emissions. A lot of them report this voluntarily. Uh, scope two is kind of their energy usage. That's, once again, nothing too complicated. But what the SEC has proposed here and what's the real problem is scope three. And that reaches down into their value chain and so you think for most farmers and ranchers, pretty much everything we produce outside of, you know, direct to consumer uh, type sales is probably going to get in the hands of a pretty large company that's regulated by the SEC. And so this regulation is really going to put a lot of pressure pushed down from these companies onto farmers and ranchers. There's no one in ag supporting this. What about outside of ag? There's a probably a smaller segment of the uh, shareholder community that's really calling for this information. But like with most things, you know, there's a lot of, a, a bit of activism tied to it uh, and really intense uh, vocal minority um, that wants some of this information. Uh, and I think some companies are going to be very concerned on potential liabilities tied to this rule. And so what will that requirement uh, because of that concern be pushed on the farmers and ranchers. That's where we have concern is that these companies are going to ask uh, for information from farmers and ranchers that e A, we either don't have or B, we don't know where to turn to. And a lot of these companies have teams of compliance officers or lawyers that keep them straight. We know that's not the case in agriculture. Um, you know, and then there's other concerns, you know, is if we were to get this data in a way that didn't put us out of business, uh, you know, what then is out there to protect our privacy? We're a very unique industry where the majority, uh, well, 98% of farms and ranches in this country are family owned. And then we tend to live there. We're one of the few businesses where you actually live and raise your children at your place of business. So what type of location privacies that are going to be protected in there? The rule is, doesn't really address those. And then finally, it's just liabilities, right? What happens when um, an audit takes place? What happens with one company reports one way and a 
different company reports another way. Who's going to ultimately be the referee? It just It's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of cost we see baked into this rule, and that's what causes us such concern. Walmsley says ag has a great story to tell. We've made so much progress in this space. It's not the fact that, you know, it's an issue around climate or sustainability. We have a great story to tell in American agriculture. I mean, you look at our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, we're down 4.3% uh, over 2020. U.S. ag emissions are close to 10%, where global ag emissions are close to 25%. Not saying we're perfect, but we are making a lot of progress. Our per unit emissions are down. Our production is up. It's all about sustainable intensification. When you look at the moral imperative we have in American agriculture to help feed 9.5 billion people in the next couple of decades. But this is really a mandate by an agency that knows very little, if anything, about agriculture uh, being pushed onto the business community that will find its way down. And so our concerns are not just only those costs. What are you going to do long term, especially if you're a smaller producer? How do you how do you comply with it? It's agriculture today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. And for me, one of the most interesting features in the livestock market is that we are in the contraction phase of the cattle cycle. Seth Meyer is chief economist at USDA, speaking at the recent Ag Outlook Forum. So the cattle cycle tends to ebb and flow because while it has a long-term direction of the U.S. herd shrinking, you know, these are animals with long biological lags, okay? So a decision made today isn't a stake until 25 or 26. Okay, so decisions made today about retaining heifers, breeding them, and taking it through the system isn't a stake until 25 or 26. So when you look at this, we have folks where, yes, cattle prices are very good, but Western drought makes them uncertain, and high feed prices make them uncertain about expansion. When my colleagues in NAS reported on the cattle report in January, didn't see a turn. Didn't see a turn in terms of producers feeling confident they could retain heifers and make that turn. It will be important to understand this year whether they feel that confidence or not. I think drought will continue to play a role on, the, on, those, cattle, on those cattle features. But remember, even if we turn the herd in the next year, cattle beef production is likely to fall through 25 or 26. And I think that that's different than we'll see in... Um, We'll see in broilers and hogs where they have, have where when you look through the outlooks, you'll see an expansion in broilers and hogs. So you've got an overall a little bit less meat production in 2023 because the cattle number, the cattle shrink is so large, it outweighs the increase in hogs and broilers. So when you're looking at this, you're saying, I'm producing just a little bit less meat, but meat demand has been incredibly strong for the last several years in the U.S. It's been really one of the features is good demand strength within the livestock, within the meat market amongst consumers. And I think that, you know, as we sprinkled some of the risks into each of these markets, the one that I think is a risk for meat producers, so cattle, poultry, pork producers, is consumers' response. Are consumers going to stay in the market and continue to buy and demand meat? Is the meat demand going to remain robust? Or are there other features of economics that will push them to making maybe some cutting demand a little bit or demand may weaken? I think that that's probably one of the key features for markets in meat in the coming years. Okay, as we see perhaps consumer personal savings rates have now kind of turned, started to turn back up a little bit in the last few observations, maybe we can continue to see good demand for meat. But to me, that's one of the key features that's important. When it comes to expectations for other livestock, Egg prices, 
That's a big percent decrease into 2023, still bigger than we've seen in previous years. And I, one thing that I think that we've got a whole section discussing some of the disease pressures. And what I will tell you is when you look at our baseline, this does not assume, for instance, a HPAI outbreak of a large scale that perhaps we saw this spring. It doesn't assume that. Okay, They'll talk to you more about that. It's more of a normal, uh, these assumptions are always kind of a normal year. All right, so when you look at that, you have a retreat in egg prices. There'll be a much further detailed discussion on those in the livestock section. Dairy product prices, again, narrowing margins for producers here. So they were supported in 2022 with high product prices resulting in high meat, uh, sorry, high milk prices. And given high feed prices, you kind of, those two things work together to have producers have a pretty good year. As product prices fall in 2023, feed prices will fall too, but you're talking about a pretty good decline in the overall milk price, perhaps narrowing margins for dairy producers in 23. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. Farm bill this year. Got to get it done. It expires. Doug LaMalfa represents the 1st Congressional District of California, member of the House Ag Committee, at a recent Farm Bill listening session. Energy, okay? Not necessarily an Ag Committee deal, but we know how badly it affects Ag when prices are through the roof on electricity, diesel, all sorts of fuel. And I don't think electric-powered vehicles are going to save the day for us, notwithstanding something might be happening over here a little later. That said, um, forestry, that's the subcommittee that I have the privilege of chairing this year. And um, Michael Harris said it very well. Um, The better we manage our forests the more water we have downhill, right? We have 500 or more trees per acre on, on a, a situation that should have 50 adult trees per acre. That water will get back into our waterways and back down where we can use it, and we still have much healthier forests in the process. We've got to get Forest Service to move on the pace and scale with which we manage our forests. Not an ag committee, or not, not this subject here necessarily today, but it's all related as we will learn. Water itself. I come from the north where water seems to be more plentiful on the west side of the Sacramento Valley, I saw devastation from the water being taken from our farmers like I'd never seen before, like you all are sort of used to. And I sympathize because you all should not have to be used to This has been 30-plus years that water's been taken from you to go out the delta for a smelt or something else, and that has not worked. It seems like we're actually doing harm the more water we push out. I guess we're drowning them or something. So it isn't working what's happening with the increase of environmental water. And indeed, do not back down, folks. When the LA Times writes, well, 80% of the water in California goes to ag. No, it's 40%. 50% goes to environmental. 40 used to be for ag. That's a smaller number. And about 10% for urban and people use. So we have to fight hard on this water thing. I have Shasta Dam in my district. I have Oroville Dam in my district. Eight million acre feet combined. San Luis Reservoir is not in my area. Normally not in my deal, maybe. We need to be filling that. Those pumps need to be chugging as hard as they can to get that thing full. Two million acre feet. So you all have a little bit more to deal with. And so we have to fight with those folks to run the pumps at the Delta to do that. We need your voice on that. Farm labor. We worked really hard in the last two Congresses to get a pretty decent bill through. Ain't perfect. But uh, we, we, got, we got one done out of the House with my colleagues here, bipartisan, okay? These three fellows on the Democrat side of the aisle, we all work together on that. It's kind of how legislation is supposed to look. It isn't an immigration bill, okay? It's a narrow bill on farm labor. It doesn't mean amnesty or all this other stuff. It means we can take care of the problem we've had and get a farm labor force. It's going to have to look a little different this time around. 
but stick with us on that. We have to keep it, you know, I'd love to, like what Manuel said, bring processors into it, but it might blow up the bill. We have to do what we can get done. So, you know, I could go all day on this, but I'm passionate about this stuff. And what's really, really important is that, you know, whether the forests are burning down, it's taken eight of my towns, eight of my towns are gone because of non-forest management and the water that could mean, or it means the energy, it means water supply. We need your voices to not give up. We need you to be passionate with us and not be called bad names by the LA Times. I try to explain to people on the East Coast with constant speeches on the house, house floor about how 99% of our tomatoes, 99% of our olives come from California. And if we don't have water to grow them, then they're not going to get their tomato paste in New York to put on their pasta and their pizza. Okay? It has to come from here. We're not going to import it all. I'm sorry I took too much time here, but we have to focus. We have to win. And we don't have a lot more time to waste to do this because we're not going to be here. Talk to our walnut guys. Talk to our walnut guys. They're not going to be here a lot longer if we don't get focused and do the things that produce for the people of this country, not for balloons, not for a broken border, not all this other stuff. We've got to get focused. It's Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. Climate Smart Ag and Forestry in itself is a, is a mouthful. John Duff is with the sorghum industry. It's a billion dollars. It's a, it's a, huge, um, it's a huge pot of money. It's a huge effort. Uh, the, of course, the grant program that you're referring to, billion dollars, uh, saw extremely strong interest. Uh, we applied, uh, along with 450 other, um, along with, along with 349 other groups, uh, for a total of 450, uh, programs that were proposed under this. And, and in a nutshell, uh, what USDA is trying to do is figure out how, uh, and help the market figure out how to function. Uh, the ecosystem services market, that is. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity, obviously, in sustainability and carbon and general ecosystem services uh, for American agriculture. We are the leaders in agricultural sustainability, bar none. And we are largely not compensated for that, uh, apart from the compensation that comes back from for the commodity production itself. And so uh, everyone's trying to figure out how to monetize that, how to get farmers compensated for that. But uh, it, it, a lot of people are calling it the Wild West right now um, in terms of what these markets are paying for, how they're paying, what frameworks they're using, what methodologies, the value practices, how they're compensating the farmer, what the contract looks like, what the terms look like. All of those things are very, very up in the air and very unknown. And so what this program is trying to do is get to the bottom of all that and say, here's what the practices should be. Here's what the value should be. Here's how the market should function. Uh, here's how the contract should look. Here's what the terms should be. Uh, and and help farmers really uh, uh, get better opportunities that are that are safer, less risky, that compensate them better and more uh, and more fairly for the value of the, the ecosystem services markets that that they're providing. And we submitted a program and project, uh, like I said, just like 349 of the groups did. Uh, and it's you know it offers a menu of practices value on. Uh, how a, an ecosystem services market in California values them. Farmers will have the opportunity to pick and um, and and uh, implement those practices in order to receive compensation. But at this point, having the word climate in it is bringing some opposition, even from the industry. It received a fair amount of criticism, even from folks in our industry on the front end, that oh, this is a billion dollars and it's a. It's a really, it's a really quick turnaround. We ended up having about ninety days to submit a proposal, and it, you know, it wasn't a very extensive proposal. It was an extensive effort, but the, the application itself wasn't very long. And 
And a lot of folks were, were understandably apprehensive about how a process like this could could really translate into in into real answers. But you know, after going through that process and thinking through all the things that we had to think through to put a program together and to put a program together that over the next five years will will lead to the outcome that we want and that's clarity in ecosystem services markets for sorghum farmers. Uh, I think that it's um, it's uh, uh, actually a, was a pretty good way to do it. It made us think pretty creatively about things. Um, and I think with 450 different approaches, uh, there's going to have to be some good ideas that come from all that. And will there be uh, uh, waste? Will there be inefficiencies? Absolutely, there always is. But frankly, that's part of the reason you want government to fund some of these things is so that we've got the freedom to fail and, and realize that hey, that was a bad idea. Um, and so government kind of de-risks it, and hopefully five years from now and 450 shots at it, uh, we will have a good idea of how to better compensate the farmer for the value of these practices. It's agriculture today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. For years, USDA has published data on base and net prices for cattle transactions. But there's not a lot of information in between. Ah, but there is now. Taylor Cox with USDA's Ag Marketing Service says the new online pilot cattle contract library is up and running, giving contract information on more than just the base and net prices that packers are offering. And, of course, in most transactions... The load of cattle, for example, will go through a series of of premiums and discounts. And that's what this library showcases is the most heavily used... Uh, premiums and discounts, and we certainly plan to expand on that uh, as we understand the contracts better. Cox says this is a pilot project, a project designed to answer the question. Is this a useful tool? Can a producer take this, easily understand it and digest it, and use it in their business model? Cox says the project will expire end of September, but Congress could vote to make it permanent. To check it out, go online, search USDA Cattle Contract Library. Gary Crawford, Washington. 